even though we were not like uh, strapping young startup dudes anymore, we we're like dads. We just thought like, hey, maybe there's another shot to, to start something together. Like we still ended up because we're engineers, we love building stuff. Right. And so like, we think, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we built this thing that lets you compare these two data sets and blah, blah, blah. We didn't really know what we were doing. We built this like huge dashboard and just data from all these different places. Nobody really wanted it. Like we kind of like overbuilt, right? But then again, like looking at it now, like, we actually do have customers paying us for that. So it's like, in some ways we were actually more right than we knew at the time. My name is Dave Zorab. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Chartable. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Dave Zorab charted a course to create a robust tool to measure podcast analytics. All this and more on Code Story. Dave Zorab has been coding since before he can remember. He's among the crews where their dads bought the TRS-80s hooked up to the TV and loaded games from tape drives. He loves music and even ran a small record label in San Francisco. But nowadays, he focuses on his family with two little kids. While working at AngelList, he and his co-founder decided to start another thing together. The problem was, they didn't know what to build. Dave had been a podcast listener for a long time, but never really thought about what was under the hood. After considering a few different avenues, including yet another podcast app, they decided to focus on podcast analytics, and some might say the app Annie for podcasting. This is the creation story of Chartable. Chartable is a podcast analytics and attribution service. We help podcast creators and publishers and networks uh, understand and grow their shows. And we help advertisers figure out if the ads are buying on podcasts are actually working. So we work with indie publishers, folks with a single podcast up to the biggest podcast networks in the world, you know, helping them market shows, helping them understand their audiences. And then we also work with the other side, the folks who are buying ads on those podcasts helping them figure out which ads are working so that they can optimize their campaigns and get more results out of the money they're allocating towards podcasts. We started the, the company. Uh, my co-founder and I were working at a, a startup called AngelList for a while. I had been there for a number of years. I had hired him a couple of years in and um, we really enjoyed working together. And even though we were not like uh, strapping young startup dudes anymore, we we're like dads. Uh, we just thought like, hey, maybe there's another shot to, to start something together. Uh, we both started companies before. We decided to quit our jobs uh, and live off our savings and try to build something. We had no particular thing in mind other than to work together and try to solve a problem that people would pay us money for, uh, which sounds pretty dumb, but <laughs> uh, it was the plan. I had a kind of natural deadline. We were going to have another kid. And uh, after my wife got pregnant, it's like, well, you know, there's, <laughs> yeah, we either need to like have a business here or I need to like get a real job. And so... We did end up building Chartable uh, after trying a few different ideas. You know, I've been a podcast listener for a long time. Hadn't ever really thought about it from a tech or business perspective. Just like was enjoying this like 
purple app on my phone that gave me a bunch of free awesome stuff that I didn't even really have to think about. Just push the button and, and listen, you know? Never really thought about what was happening under the hood. And when we were exploring different ideas, we thought, well, why don't we like look into podcasts? So the thing we ended up settling on was doing podcast analytics, following basically parallels from other media. Like I used to make apps on the App Store back in the early days of the iPhone. And it was a lot like podcasts are now. Basically, you get download numbers like once a day from Apple. And that like is that's about the same as like where a lot of podcasts are at far as like how you understand your audience, right? And so there are so many parallels between early App Store and where podcasts are now, even though podcasts have been around longer, a lot of the infrastructure of the medium is fairly underdeveloped, let's say. So we thought that there was an opportunity to bring some of the data and the knowledge that have, you know, the tools that have been built for other media and bring it to this medium. And that was how Chartable was born. Tell me about the MVP for Chartable. How long did it take to build? What sort of tools did you get, did you set out to use? Um, things like that. Yeah, so we actually had a few different podcast ideas besides the app. We, we did a podcast discovery thing called Tripod. We did a like a promo swap type app. The idea was that podcasters could swap like uh, promos or guest spots with other podcasters to grow their shows called PodSwap. And the idea with all of these was to build something super fast using technology we already knew, get it out there as soon as possible and get it in front of users, right? So I've been using Rails since forever. Now it's not cool. The cool kids don't like Rails anymore. It has its flaws, but I, I know it really, really well. I'm in like a, a deep relationship with Rails for better or for worse. We've entered like, you know, a very kind of stable part of our relationship where I know Rails flaws. I'm not sure if Rails knows my flaws. Hopefully not. Uh, so we just use the stuff we know and we put it out there as fast as we can. And the goal is not to build something super fancy. I think those days are behind me as an engineer. I used to get a kick out of using the, the coolest new tech. For me now, it's about, about the business. And again, maybe it was because of that pressure of a new child that I had over my head. But like, it was really about building something that people want, not about building something that I thought was cool. Uh, once we figured out that Chartable might be a thing, the idea was kind of like App Annie for podcasts. App Annie does a lot of this kind of data aggregation for the App Store and for uh, Google Play Store. We thought, okay, how quickly can we get this out there? And so it was actually almost two years ago to the day. It was last Thursday, June 8th, would have been our two-year anniversary of our first commit. We just started cranking and we're old guys. We write a lot of like specs for stuff, even if we don't build it. Uh, and that's just a habit I picked up at AngelList and wrote a spec for what could be the minimum viable product. You know, we got that together pretty quickly. And within weeks, we had it in front of like uh, podcasters. We posted it to Reddit, posted it to various communities. And we had signups right away. And the fee initial feedback was super great, which never happens, right? This is not how it usually goes. <laughs> uh, maybe it happened in this case because it was like our fifth idea or whatever that like iterated enough to get something decent. So in the short term, while you're building it, I mean, you're getting some traction as soon as you build that that sort of early prototype. In the short term, you, you probably had to make some decisions and trade-offs either to do something quickly or to cut a feature or something like that. How did you go about that process and how did you cope with those decisions? Yeah, those those decisions are never fun. Like everything is a trade-off, right? Like literally everything, nothing's for free, right? So it's whether it's trading off my time or money or um, you know the completeness of the product or something like that. We always err on the side of moving fast. <laughs> That's our, like, our biggest thing, uh, especially, I mean, it's, it's less true now because we actually have like a huge user base and a lot of customers and reliability is more important. Uh, but in the early days, it doesn't matter if it's reliable because nobody's using it, right? 
So we erred on the side of moving quickly and getting it in front of people as quickly as possible. That was that was where our guiding lights. Everything else fell by the wayside. A lot of stuff was incomplete. There were a lot of buttons that led to nowhere. You know, a lot of like broken pages. Stuff happens. You know, it, it's hard to have a product out there that is that is broken. That's embarrassing as an engineer. But as someone who's trying to build a business, like that to me is a is an acceptable trade off. I'll have it be broken so that I can move faster and get more feedback from a customer more quickly. So then from that point, how did you progress the product and how did you start to build a roadmap of, okay, this is the next stuff that's important to our user base um, and things like that? We worked really hard to get an initial set of users as quickly as we could. And part of that was from the other experiments we had run. We had like a small mailing list that we were using. And then things started spreading pretty quickly organically on, a, on their own, which was great. We, we do a mix of qualitative and quantitative feedback from customers. You know, we do customer interviews, we do surveys to get the kind of feelings of what people want and ask people what they want. And then we'd also do heavy instrumentation on the product itself to see what people are clicking. What are people actually using? What's the thing that brings people back? If there's anything I've learned from building products on the internet for a really long time, it's like people's expressed preferences are not always the same as their like revealed preferences. Like what they do is not the same as what they say. So we have to, you know, the art of it, the art of building a good product is kind of trying to figure out where the truth or the potential truth lies in between those two things. So we went to, after building the prototype and putting it out in front of people, there was a, the biggest podcast conference uh, in the U.S. called Podcast Movement was like a, li a little over a month after we started working on Charitable. And we were like, okay, well, let's go. It happened to be in Philadelphia. We we're based in New York. We hopped on the train, got a super cheap dirt cheap airbnb in this like really sketchy part of town and just like went to the went to the conference and tried to get as many meetings as we could and a lot of those folks you know we knew very little about podcasts at that point to be honest you know, other than being listeners but we learned so much from being at that conference and a lot of those folks ended up being customers or even employees since then um and so it was really just about heavy customer interaction like the people that are making these shows no way more even though we've had podcasts uh and you know i'm hoping to restart my podcast you know the folks that are living and breathing the challenges of creating these shows every day whether it's a one-person show or you know a huge radio network those are the folks who we serve right and so they're the ones who are right and we just have to decide like what we can do <laughs> to serve them you know <laughs> so how did you go about building your team and and specifically, what did you look for in the people to indicate they were the winning horses to join Chartable? So my co-founder and I are both engineers. We both worked together, you know, at Angels before. So we knew each other's, like, they were both pretty good and that we could work together. So our first hire was a non-engineer. Uh, it's this guy, Carl Chuklas, and he was at Wondery, which is a big podcast network. And we hired him because he is... He knows way more about podcasts than we do and like knows people in the industry. So that, that first hire, our non-technical hires are a lot about either domain specific knowledge or just like a, a real passion for this medium. Because like when we're working with our customers, I feel like that passion translates into better results. Like people can tell whether or not you care about the thing that you're selling that care or care about the thing you're building. When it comes to engineers, our two, we have two other engineers on the team and we're hiring for another engineer. We're much more concerned with kind of raw talents and ability to learn and ability to to try things than we are with like a great resume. I've worked with folks who have gone to wonderful engineering schools and a lot of them were good, some of them were not. 
to me, I'm much more concerned with somebody's ability to learn and, and, and to want to do better and to want to do that on their own. So they don't need somebody, you know, micromanaging their code all the time. So that self-motivation, that, that intellectual ability is really what we look for. And that's true of, of non-engineers as well. So you mentioned uh, you know, the first hire being a non-tech hire from Wondery. Were there any other sort of domain-specific ones that you can mention that were impactful early hires? All of our non-technical folks have some some domain-specific knowledge. Our chief revenue officer, uh, this guy Chris Calvi, really awesome dude. He'd worked with Harish, my co-founder. He's just like a, a real sales guru. You know, he just uh, without being a sales guy, you know, like he's not like a sleaze sales guy. He's just a guy who knows how to like talk to people and and is really solutions oriented uh, when it comes to customer problems. And he knows a lot about scaling teams. Uh, he's built, you know, built sales teams and run big organizations, bigger organizations than I'm running for sure. Chartable is still really small compared to the last company Chris was running. So that knowledge is super helpful. Uh, but ultimately, we're still really small. And, and when it comes down to it, uh, domain-specific knowledge will help. We're thinking about hiring a, you know, we have a job opening for a senior backend engineer, and we're the jury's still out whether we want somebody. We deal with like pretty heavy big data streams at this point. Uh, we're tracking something like 750 million downloads a month right now through our um, analytics infrastructure, which is a lot. It's like, you know, hundreds, over 100 million requests a day through our like uh, analytics prefix. And that's, you know, pretty big and getting bigger all the time and trying to run these attribution queries against that. It's hard and it's way outside of my area of expertise. And so the question is like, do we hire somebody who really already knows that stuff? Or do we hire somebody who has some experience uh, and can learn it? Or do we hire somebody who can just take over other parts of our workload as engineers? And then we learn that kind of like heavier bit data stuff ourselves. So we haven't, honestly, haven't decided. It probably depends on which folks we interview and who comes in the door. Did you build this in the beginning to scale efficiently? Or was this something where you got it working and then you got a bunch of users and you're like, okay, it's time to make it scale more efficiently? So inefficient when we built. I mean, still there's so many, so many things. A lot of a lot of the last couple of months have been about reliability and scalability. Because like as we talked about earlier, we were so focused on getting customer feedback that like of course we cut corners from an engineering perspective. And so things were not designed to scale at all. One of our core data ingestion endpoints called analytics prefix, it sits in people's RSS feeds. And when their podcast gets downloaded, our server gets a ping first. And so then we're then able to use that to count the number of downloads they have, to help them measure their marketing spend, et cetera, et cetera. And that we launched that in October of 2018. And we get more traffic now per day than we used to get a month, not that long ago. Even if we had thought about scaling in the beginning, I don't think we would have guessed that it would have gotten this big that fast. So we there's just always there's always a new bottleneck, always new fires to put out. And so classic metaphor of changing the wheels on the moving car, changing the tires on the moving car. We're doing that. We're also simultaneously building a new car uh, on the other side <laughs> that we hope to move into it someday. It's going to be great. Jumping a little bit uh, to a different topic. As you step out on the balcony and look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? That's a really good question. I think I'm happiest that that we've built something that seems to be valuable to like a pretty large swath of people in a really creative medium that I love, right? So there's like something like 50,000 users, like not all of them are using the thing on a daily basis, but like, uh, you know, at least 10,000 of them are, are logging in every month. And that's a lot. That's like a big number of people for a pretty small industry. 
I'm really proud of that. I know we have a lot of work to do. There's so many confusing parts of the product, a lot of things that's broken. You know, so many things to improve. I look at it and see all the all the different ways it could improve. But the idea that we've built something that that actually solves a problem for a large number of people, that's hard to do. Let's be honest, right? <laughs> I built a lot of stuff that nobody cared about. So uh, I'm happy that that we are able to do something that matters here. And also that it matters in an industry that I actually love. Uh, like I said, like I love podcasters and and this community. And so the idea that we could be here to help and to like build something valuable and keep keep hopefully improving and, and making something better, that that's really matters to me. And I'm really proud of that. On the other side of things, so tell me about a mistake you made and, and how you and your team responded to it. Uh, we've made a lot of mistakes. Almost all the stuff that we've built, we've designed so that like it's fairly redundant. Even when things go wrong, that we can recover, that like we don't lose data. There have been times where we have lost data, and that to me is just the most painful thing, right? It is just like... Like there's been times where the thing that sits in front of people's downloads, it goes down completely, right? And it's only happened twice. But when that happens, like there are literally thousands of podcasts that can't be downloaded, right? And that's a huge, huge failure on our part, uh, even if it's something that's outside of our control, as it was the last time that it happened. Like, you know, our cloud provider went down, right? And uh, we had a backup plan for when that was supposed to happen. And the backup plan failed. Our backup plan did not work, right? And so... In those cases, a lot of people's instinct is to try to try to hide a little bit or to try to like cover up the mistake or try to like minimize it. But we just really try to be as transparent as possible with our customers because I think that is what builds trust over the long term. And so we just totally owned up to it. And we've also invested heavily in we like built a new backup plan and we tested it, right? It's like I can't guarantee that like it's going to work next time because like, you know, it's the internet. Everything is like basically duct taped together. Who knows what's going to happen? But I would like to think that we've learned from it. And as the company grows, like I said in the beginning, we were only interested in moving fast and didn't care at all about quality. That's not true anymore. You know, we have to balance speed with reliability because we have a lot of customers that rely on us. And so we don't want to let them down. And so I think that kind of dialing that in over time is important figuring out when when speed matters more, you know, is the most important consideration, when reliability is the most important consideration, and always trying to be as transparent as possible when we screw something up. Absolutely. Yeah, it's better to own up and take accountability and say, we're going to fix it than try to cover it up. It, to me, it's the only way to go. I mean, it, it, somehow it doesn't always seem to be that way, you know, with, with, with every, every company, but it's the only way to go. What does the future look like for Chartable, for the product and for your team? So we're growing the team uh, for sure. We took a very conservative reaction to the coronavirus pandemic. A lot of us are based in New York. It was felt really heavily here. A lot of us got sick. The podcast advertising market, like all advertising markets, uh, got hit. So we were pretty freaked out for a while. Uh, and we've managed to grow pretty well through the crisis. You know, I think that seeing that we've been able to grow the business and grow the product through through this like really tough time to be doing business, especially in, in media, uh, then I'm like fairly optimistic about the future here. And by fairly, I mean very. It's just that I'm an engineer and I can't say that uh, everything is going to be great without sticking an asterisk on there. So we're, we're growing the team. We're hiring engineers. We're hiring uh, folks on the sales and account management side. 
from a tech perspective, we have like a pretty mixed uh, stack. There's still a lot of stuff on Heroku, which is what we used when we launched. Uh, but we've been moving more stuff to like a serverless setup on AWS. And that has given us a lot more reliability and control over the scalability issues that we've talked about. But not everything is over there. You know, we also have like data stored in various, you know, some like pretty specialized data storage for the data that's flowing in so that we can run the attribution queries that we need to run. So there's a lot of re-architecture to be done there uh, while also continue, you know, we can't have any downtime, right? So like everything has to be done live and 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 seamlessly. So that's, it's going to be a long project, right? Of like scaling us, you know, we already went more than 10x in the last year. It's probably going to be another 10x uh, in the next year. It's going to require huge tech changes uh, on the backend. So some serious backend architecture and engineering products, data processing. Are you approaching that with the with the microservices mentality, or everybody kind of has opinion on microservices and how small and how big, or if to do them at all? Um, we we do use them. For us, I think we have uh, workflows where it really makes sense. Like when we're ingesting data from a particular data source, whether that's like a dynamic ad insertion webhook from a ad provider, or you know the prefix that sits in our RSS feed, those are basically separate ingestion endpoints, and we don't want them coupled to each other at all. Right. So they really are like, but this is like a classic case where microservices totally makes sense. Like the customer facing product, it's just a huge Rails monolith. That's fine. Right. Like I don't need to deploy crazy microservices there, you know, unless we have some reason to change that, we'll, we'll change it. But, you know, given we have a lot of different ways that data can be ingested, we want them to be from a reliability and code standpoint just to be, you know, distinct. They have different requirements, different uptime requirements, different deployment requirements. And, uh, you know, so it's perfect for a microservice. So who influences the way that you work? Uh, CEO, CTO, architect, person, uh, any person really. Name a person you look up to and why. The biggest influences on my career, uh, one of them was my friend and former boss, uh, Naval Ravikant, who's the founder of Angelist. We've been friends for a long time. He invested in my first company back in 2007 just like has a great way of being able to like think about the world in terms of systems and incentives and just this kind of zoomed out look at things. Uh, and he's always, always looking at things from a different angle. Uh, I've internalized a lot of his approach to building products and thinking about markets and how to think strategically about what we're working on. Other folks, my friend and former co-founder, Jim Young, who started this uh, company, Hot or Not, back in the day, which is my first uh, startup job. This is like, I worked there in like 2005, back when we still had like a colo in like South San Jose and like would have to like manage, like manage physical machines ourselves, uh, which was cool. Uh, he like invented a lot of like cool stuff at the time and uh, gets no credit for it, which is, you know, his way. But uh, we did a lot of really I think innovative stuff around database sharding and scaling and because the hot Not was a massively popular website at the time. Now there's a lot of out of the box stuff to like handle that kind of traffic. But this was like PHP four, I think maybe PHP five and like MySQL, like really early version before NODB. So it was like my ISIM, like no, no transactional anything. Uh, like we, like he wrote this like database, like sharding stuff and like, read write replicas all with like php and mysql in like super early days plus like code deployment across like 100 plus servers you know all the stuff that people take for granted now like being able to like think through like what are the problems and then solve it your own way even you know i think that's awesome 
And then I guess like the, the obvious one would be like Paul Graham. You know, I, we, I didn't go through YC. Harish did my co-founder at his last company in the early days. But, you know, thinking of stuff I still refer back to, you know, Paul Graham's essays, I think are, have been really influential for me. If you could go back to the beginning of Chartable, what would you do differently or, or where would you consider taking a different approach on? Overall, I think we did things okay. If anything, I think that uh, being even more customer-centric, like we still ended up, because we're engineers, we love building stuff, right? And so like, we think, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we built this thing that lets you compare these two data sets and blah, blah, blah. It's like, we didn't really know what we were doing. We built this like huge dashboard and just data from all these different places. Nobody really wanted it. Like we kind of like overbuilt, right? But then again, like looking at it now, like, we actually do have customers paying us for that, right? So it's like, in some ways, we were actually more right than we knew at the time. But yeah, I mean, like ultimately, um, I would have just like, every time we get on the phone with a customer and watch them use the thing, we learn so much. I would have just do more of that. I should still be doing more of that. That's like, that's the number one thing, you know? <laughs> so you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to you, to the world. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to make a huge impact. Having gone down this road multiple times, what what advice would you give that person? For me, the, the biggest thing that's been hard to internalize is just how long building something that matters takes. Like, you know, we always hear about the flash in the pan and the instant millionaires or whatever. But everyone I know who's built something meaningful has spent like at least like 10 years doing it, right? Uh, which is totally at odds with you know, the, the speed of the internet, right? Uh, and and still my instinct is to move fast, move fast, move fast. But really it's like you can move fast, but also recognize that the entire process is a decade or more, right? So I'm two years into what will be at least 10 years at this company. And I'm comfortable with that now, now that I'm like in my, you know, nearing middle age or whatever, like I'm cool with that, right? But to the, the young entrepreneur is probably thinking like, I'm gonna launch this and two months later, you know, gonna get acquired by Facebook for a hundred million dollars. But like thinking about the, the arc of the project and how do you maintain momentum throughout the arc and the many highs and lows, uh, emotional highs and lows, business highs and lows, so many challenges, uh, great things and terrible things that'll happen along the way. That to me is like something I'm still working with every day. It's like, okay, it's like, you know, we're three months into a pandemic. I'm working in my garage. How do I keep my team together? How do I keep growing the business and achieve our goals here? That's hard. That, that initial spark, that passion, whatever, like that wore off, let's be honest, right? Like it was really cool. Like the idea of building new stuff, it's, it's so cool to build new stuff, right? We're in a totally different phase now. To be clear, I'm totally enjoying it. It's fantastic. But it's a very different feeling to be in that, that kind of more mature stage of a company and solving a very different class of problems than like, how do we hack this together and get it out there? I guess that's a really long-winded answer for my plain seatmate. Uh, but hopefully they would have sat through that. <laughs> well, Dave, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for being on Code Story and telling the creation story of Chartable. All right. Thanks so much, Tom. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. 
And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.